Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Nancy Davis, founder of Quadratic Capital, has spent her entire career trading options of all shapes and sizes and across all of the asset classes. She's traded them listed, OTC, vanilla, and complex in rates, FX, commodities, credit, and equities. Over the course of nearly 20 years, Nancy's developed important perspective on risk cycles, trading through the dot-com era, the great financial crisis, the 2011 sovereign crisis, Brexit in 2016, and more recently, the VIX Unwind event of early 2018. Over these episodes and the quiet periods in between them, Nancy has developed a philosophy on utilizing optionality as a core vehicle to implement long or short directional exposure. Our conversation explores the fundamental question, are options a good deal or not, in light of the demonstrated premium of implied to realize volatility over time set against the numerous option blowups that have occurred in markets. As a prominent woman in the derivative space, I also seek Nancy's views on the state of female representation in the finance industry and the work she's doing to advance the cause of having more women on the investing side of the business. Lastly, we discuss IVOL, the Quadratic Interest Rate Volatility and Inflation Hedge ETF, an innovative product that Nancy recently launched. In a world in which options on the yield curve cost very little, and next to no one sees the potential for appreciably higher inflation, Nancy sees IVOL as a valuable portfolio diversifier. Please enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my discussion with Nancy Davis. Nancy, it's great to be in your office today and welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Thank you, Dean. It's great to be here. Well, we have plenty to go through in the uh, world of VOL and you and I have known each other for many, many years, starting way back in the very early 2000s, a period of elevated volatility, the tech bubble. We're sitting here on the day before September 11th, which of course was a tragic event for the United States, but also something that created a tremendous amount of volatility in the markets. Why don't we start with the early days of your career? You're a prominent woman in finance. You've done quite a bit. There's not that many women in finance. How is it that maybe during college, tell us how you became interested in finance, what attracted you to finance, and then how did you start your career? Yeah, I was, I guess, a little lucky because I found my passion very early on, which is I love investing and trading and specifically derivatives. And then within derivatives, options are my real passion. And I found that in college, I was very lucky I had a job. My parents were not sending me checks, and so I needed to earn a living. I was a scholarship kid, so I had an academic ride, but then still needed to earn some money to go have uh, crab cakes in Georgetown with my rich kid friends. And because of my job, I was learning about swaps because we were working with transfer pricing in the mid-90s. And I started taking some grad classes because of my scholarship. I was allowed to do that. And so I ended up taking five grad classes in college. I was probably a little bit of an unusual resume to come in off the internet from Goldman Sachs. I had never even been to New York. I didn't know anybody at Goldman. I didn't know anything about investment banking, but I knew I loved trading and investing with options. So the early days of your career at Goldman Sachs, as we commented This was, in a lot of ways, pre-social media and the way in which information is processed and exchanged. But it's also a period, of course, well before the financial crisis, well before Dodd-Frank, and a period during which the large investment banks 
had proprietary trading groups that they were dedicated to. And Goldman's was, as I recall, quite significant. Tell us about that period at Goldman and, and how you developed really your empirical experience in the markets. Yeah, it was a wonderful environment for learning because on the prop desk at Goldman, my specialty was always options and derivatives, but we had access to the sell side systems and pricing models. And it allowed me to really focus on cross asset class options and expand our knowledge base and have a lot of flexibility over the years, whether we were using credit structures or interest rates or commodity options or mortgages. The beautiful thing about a derivative is the mechanics are the same regardless of what the underlier is. And so for me, it was just a tremendous learning opportunity where we had a lot of flexibility between asset classes and where opportunities were at the time. And I want to recall that in that period, in and around 2001, 2002, this was sort of the early days of cap structure arbitrage. This was, at least for sell-side folks like myself, we started to gain this appreciation for the almost limitless appetite from certain counterparties for downside puts at prices that you didn't think were the right price. They seemed expensive, but the other side of that seemed to be some credit-bearing trade, maybe a CDS trade. What was that like as you guys, you had this go-anywhere approach, you had access to lots of different professionals with expertise across asset classes. How did you guys develop your version of some of that cross-asset relative pricing of volatility? Maybe just to back up, the way that I made it onto Goldman's prop desk was creating an arbitrage with ADR options in the volatility space. So I was trading a lot in Scandinavia, Europe, and looking at options, whether they were in the Helsinki market versus the New York Stock Exchange. And so creating that early arbitrage was how I joined. It was not called prop then. It was called risk arbitrage. So I never did security selection, but I was always doing volatility and options investing. I think starting in really 99, people started to understand what I was doing, where I was trading very large sizes in the US markets. And it made the arbitrage go away. So I think when we started, when I started doing a lot of capital structure ARB, especially around like WorldCom, Enron in 2001, 2002, 2003, I wasn't telegraphing what we were doing. We were trading equity options. We were trading credit options. We were trading rates. We were trading commodities. We were trading pretty much everything to really isolate opportunities. And I think I learned my lesson from the ADR arbitrage experience where I had to only trade upstairs only with agency brokers because if they heard, oh, it was Nancy Davis at Goldman Prop, they would not make a market. So I think having a little bit of being incognito is very important. And so when you think back over the course of your career, I kind of want to get to the early days and in the period leading into the financial crisis. We'll spend some time on that because I can't imagine that you weren't active during that period. What are some of the early lessons in risk management with respect to market movements, you know, both on the way in which vol materializes, changes in the relative price of vol. Were there any events or situations that still stick with you in terms of forming your risk management philosophy, lessons that maybe you took away from the unexpected results? What were some of those? Yeah, I'd say that really goes back to 1998 when I first started at Goldman. This was before the firm had IPO'd when it was truly a partnership. And it was also when long-term capital was blowing up. And I think that was very formative for my 
early career to see they were selling volatility. A lot of it was in Asia. There was a lot of counterparty risks that we were worried about. And I think that really formed the foundation of my whole methodology with Quadratic and my entire career of knowing our downside and using options to essentially reverse the order of stop losses. Whereas most portfolio managers, they create a portfolio and then they risk manage that portfolio with the use of stop losses. And to me, that seemed backwards because think about if you have a portfolio, say it's stocks, bonds, whatever, when you're stop lossing, you've already lost money and now you're selling along that you used to like at a loss or you're buying back a short that you used to like being short at a gain. So you're kind of just locking in those losses. And so for me, that was really where we saw using options gives you more staying power. It allows you to take high conviction views, but also hold it and not be subjective to the whims of, and I think it's especially relevant in today's age with all the tweets and noise and headlines and the way markets can move kind of very quickly and then reverse. Having limited loss options for your directional trades is really started in 1998 for me from that partnership culture. Because in a partnership, a dollar you make is great, but a dollar you lose comes directly from your wallet. And so we were always very conservative with how I think in the world of derivatives, they have a pretty bad reputation for a reason, because most people use derivatives for leverage. Whereas options, especially the way that we use options, I know you've known me almost 20 years, the way I use options is premium paid options. It's like a debit card where you know always what your downside is and you have the asymmetric payoff if you're right. And I like your analogy to the the sort of built-in stop loss. And I think we share certain, from a philosophy of options, I think you and I have a lot of overlap in terms of how we look at it. And your version of the stop loss built into options, the way I've sometimes articulated that is options have this incredible characteristic, which uh, it acts more like the underlying when you want it to. Let's say when it goes up, the call delta goes up and it sort of de-emphasizes its connection to the underlying as the option goes down. And that's the de-risking. And I think that at the heart of optionality is this question, what is that price of that? It's very attractive. It's a very attractive attribute. And so this is where I will touch on this over the course of our conversation, but there is a vol risk premium. Folks have made careers basically selling vol as a risk premium collection strategy. Of course, very smart counterparties like long-term have famously blown up doing it. And many of the option blowups are that. How does that, when you think about the vol risk premium, which is pretty demonstrated over time and across asset classes, you're on the other side of that in a lot of ways. You're buying optionality. How do you manage through the the skinny times of 2017 or that pre-crisis era where the vols were very, very low, both realized and implied? How do you mitigate the kind of sideways periods? Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting because in the options markets, most of the investors are Delta hedgers. So the ones that are selling, say, covered calls are not necessarily Delta hedging because they're overwriting and not Delta hedging. But most of the vol community is selling implied vol and trying to Delta hedge realized vol. And I don't do that. We invest in options directionally. And so the cheaper and lower, and this is a good going back to 2008, one of my biggest positions at that time was actually Volkswagen. 
And people thought Volkswagen Vol was very, very expensive because of the spread between implied and realized. So implied Vol was very low, but realized Vol was even lower. And to me, that was a screaming buy because I was like, I don't care about the ratio between implied and realized Vol. This is a cheap option to own. And whether it's a short squeeze on the way up or fundamentals play out and it goes down, either way, I like owning the implied Vol. And so I'd say... I'm in the fringe of people who are, and you tell me if you agree with this, where most investors and options are either doing overwrite strategies tied to underlying portfolios, or they're selling and trying to arbitrage the implied realized difference. And we're a little different because we're not doing that. And so for me, it's irrelevant, the difference between implied and realized. Right. So the cost is what you're very interested in, not necessarily the degree to which implied versus realized that there's a spread. Exactly. Yeah. I consider us a professional convexity sniffer. And we're looking for the most asymmetric payout that we can achieve. And the cost of volatility is the cost of doing business. And the lower implied vol is, the more asymmetry we have. So I think a really interesting topic for us, we're going to come back to it, is this 50-year storm of low vol in 2017 was quite fascinating. Of course, it led into something, which I want to get your take on, because I know you were very active in thinking about some of those ETFs that were built on the VIX. But let's just go back to the period leading into the financial crisis. What, from your perch in terms of overseeing convexity risk, were there signs, were there signals? Were there times where there was a light bulb going off inside your head that said, this is not a garden variety, VIX pops to 35 and then mean reverts downward. This is something bigger. Take us through your thought process back then. Yeah. So over the course of my 20-year career investing in options, it's always been from a cross-asset class lens. And from my experience, I think the rates markets are the, if I was going to call them the smartest markets, the rates markets are what kind of is a first mover, the first signs of the cracks. It always happens in rates. People think it's credit, like credit spreads. Credit's second. But equities are last, pretty much always from my experience. So in 2007, what we were looking at was the rates markets. And that was kind of the sign that things were not so good. Things were not so healthy in the mortgage markets. We were putting on shorts in the mortgage space through the use of options and really setting that up. Now, it took a while. It took a whole year to kind of play out. But it was a rates market, which is always, in my mind, from my experience, the leading indicator for times to come. And it's interesting that you would talk about 2007 to now. Because in 2007, the yield curve had inverted and actually started to invert at the end of 2006. And right now, we're right back there. The yield curve is actually even more inverted than it was before the global financial crisis. And I think that's something significant and something investors should be paying attention to. So much commentary, I think deservedly so, on the yield curve inversion. As you say, it's been tied with some degree of consistency as a signal to economic weakness, even recession. It's predicted nine of the last five recessions, that type of thing. But it's well-documented in the literature as having some signaling effect. And of course, because the central banks are looking at it, we have to look at it as well. How do you set the signals that might be coming from these asset price relationships from the yield curve and other relative value constructions? How do you look at it now versus years gone by, knowing that the system is always a little different, just knowing that the central banks are so much more active in markets. 
are the signals the same and how do you maybe update the relevance of things given that the actors in the marketplace tend to change over time? I think the inverted yield curve is very, very challenging for financial markets. We are a consumer-driven economy and it's positive for people who are borrowing money because you can borrow money now very cheaply. And I think that's why central banks were very focused on flattening the yield curve in 2011 when interest rates were already at the zero bound. We were having a European crisis. They needed to stimulate the U.S. and keep the economy from toppling over then. And what they did was Operation Twist, which flattened the yield curve from 250 basis points down to where we are now inverted. So I do think there is a need for financing because we're so consumer driven. But at the same time, if you think about today, if you walk across the street and you go to a bank and you open up a three month CD, you get paid 45 basis points more for that three month CD than you would if you had a 10 year CD. Like that's pretty crazy. It doesn't make you're basically getting less yield for more risk and for a longer term lockup. So eventually it's it's unclear whether it's a chicken or the egg, but that breaks the financial system because banks borrow in the short term and lend in the long term. And with an inverted yield curve, it's a problem for the banking system. In 2017, it was a really, to me, a, one of the most fascinating confluence of low vol that we've seen, even more so than in the period leading into the crisis. 2006 was a 10 realized in the S&P. 2017 was a six and a half. And I want to say the spread, just the range of just daily yield closes in the 10-year was also at the tightest range in 50 years. So you had this stocks and bonds just being flatlined. And I'm curious because you really nailed the XIV unwind. What was your thinking during 2017? What were the types of things you were watching? And then as things started to materialize in 2018, early 18, how did you guys play that? What were you active in? The newest and latest buzzword in the world of option selling is risk premia. And the risk premia strategies were really a result of central bank manipulation for many years. The reality is most institutional investors have to make a return target. They need to meet their benchmark and because we've been in such a low yield environment for so many years, they're reaching and going into other asset classes and other places for yield. And risk premia, in my opinion, is just a really nice word for selling ball. And that has become a very popular strategy with institutional investors where they're trying to extract the risk premia between implied vol, which is 99% of the time higher than realized vol, which is actually happening. And then they delta hedge it or they use variant swaps. So for me, what was happening in 2017 was just a dump of volatility on the market that was making the people who were long, which is mostly the sell side and other vol players, delta hedge like crazy. And so when you're long gamma and you're delta hedging something, it makes the band smaller. So the movements of realized vol, it's like same thing happened with Volkswagen in early 2008, is that everybody was long volatility from Porsche selling options. They were just dumping the street with options. And it's the same thing. Risk premia was just selling so much vol that the people who were delta hedging had to delta hedge more frequently. And that's almost like a snowball that's rolling down the mountain and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger because the more vol that's sold, 
the more gamma that the dealers are long, the more they have to delta hedge, which makes realize go lower, which reinforces the trade. And then they're like, oh my gosh, this risk premium stuff is magic. Let's do more of it. <laughs> so Yeah, so interesting. 2017 and I mentioned that the realized of six and a half for the entire year, but there were periods, especially towards the end of the year, I want to say December of 17 might have been a three on the S&P. This was a 2,600 priced index going up or down a point each day. And it's hard to get away from the notion that the street and these Delta hedgers were just so stuffed with gamma and tripping over themselves, creating this gamma well. It could be a little unprovable. That's where I struggle a little bit is that we try to, and I'm curious what you think. There's a lot of street research on, well, here's where the street is short gamma or long gamma. I personally struggle with it, not because I don't believe it. It's just I find it difficult to corroborate. You've been very active in OTC derivatives over the course of your career. And while you were at Goldman, you might've done an absolutely giant trade in OTC derivatives. And folks on the street are going to be looking at the published put call ratios or open interest, it's just never going to show up. And that's, I'm curious what you think as you try to kind of tell the story or convince yourself of what the setup looks like, how close are we to knowing what positioning really is? How do you kind of square the incompleteness of the information? The OTC markets are more common in the fixed income space. I think they're just older markets. That was kind of the original derivatives markets were in fixed income, specifically rates. And uh, I think the equity markets are newer. They've moved to exchange. Like people hear volatility and they think of the VIX. And to me, that's just such a such a narrow way to look at volatility because anything that has an option, whether it's sugar or Saudi FX or US interest rates, everything has its own volatility market, anything that has options. And so I think equities are just listed. They're easy to access. You don't need a ton of, with the OTC markets, it's just harder to invest in those if you're just a two guys and a Bloomberg and a Golden Retriever. You need to have ISDA agreements. You need to have systems. You need to have vol levels. You have to have you have to have to a model to know the price. Whereas with a listed security, you can pull it up on your iPhone and say, ah, the exchange tells me the price is here. It might not be the right price, but that's what the model says. So I think the OTC markets provide a lot of opportunity. They're also very large markets compared to equities. And I think people get too focused on just one type of volatility and not open to all the different possibilities out there. So two questions as you focus on rate volatility, a couple of questions come to mind. One is the kind of evolution of the markets in terms of pricing and price transparency. My understanding on swaptions, the stomping ground is OTC. That's where the big trades go up. Pretty liquid for years and years and years. But I'm curious if you could provide some insight in terms of the growth towards even more transparency and more liquidity. There's the creation of CEFs. Has this been helpful in terms of driving the price discovery process to be even cleaner and the ability to transact in even larger sizes. That's question one is kind of walk us through as over the course of your career at trading a lot of interest rate volatility, what does it look like now versus let's say the pre-crisis period? Are dealers better equipped to facilitate large trades? Is from a client standpoint, is it better, the same, worse? What does it look like? I think the interest rate volatility markets have a similar 
issue to other markets, like for instance, in equities, S&P Vol is listed, liquid, easily accessible, whereas other markets like the A-shares market or Kospi in Korea have currencies that are not settled in dollars, so they only trade OTC. And for years, there's always been a, a difference between Asian volatility and U.S. volatility because of access. And the same thing happens in the interest rate markets, where there are listed options in rates. There are two main markets. There's the listed futures market on treasuries. And then there's a euro dollar market, which actually has nothing to do with Europe. It's the LIBOR options market. EDA is the contract. Those are transparent, easily accessible, and anybody can trade rates in those markets. Whereas to go back to the equity analogy, like the Kospi in Korea and Asia's market, the OTC markets, you have to have ISDAs, you have to have systems, you have to have market data. Those are not as accessible. So on the OTC side, you really have the vanilla rate swaptions markets, which are options on swaps. And then you also have other types of volatility, like what we're doing in iVol is optionality on the yield curve, which again is not a listed product and something that people can't access. And so there, there are actually wild differences with not all rate vol is the same. And the listed rate vol is much more expensive than the OTC vol, just like the S&P Asia analogy because of access. Maybe you can bring to life for us the way in which rate volatility is traded at different maturities, the term structure. Are there players or strategies, whether it's on the option-taking side or risk premium generating side, the sellers? On the S&P side, you've got this beast of an upward-sloping term structure. It's very difficult to fight from a buying optionality because you're fighting this roll-down. There's not as much liquidity as there used to be in the long-dated stuff. What does rate vol across the curve look like? Obviously, you're trading optionality on the curve itself, which we'll talk about. But what are the impacts of different strategies on where rate vol clears at different maturities? Yeah. The difficult thing about equity vol is that if you buy an option, you pay time decay. And it decays more as you get closer to expiration. And a longer dated option has more volatility sensitivity, less gamma, but it still decays. With an equity option, there's literally nothing you can do to offset the decay. It just is what it is. You have the term structure, and that's all you can use to kind of make it easier to own is basically the term structure of that vol curve. In rates and in other fixed income markets, there are two ways that you can offset the time decay. A, you have the volatility term structure, but you also have the forward. And the forward, especially in rates, is what makes it easier to own, in my opinion, rate volatility than equity volatility, because you have the term structure of all, but you also have the shape of the interest rate curve. And the shape of the interest rate curve, although you're still paying time decay if you're along an option, you can actually get positive carry from the roll down in the rate curve. So irrelevant to what the vol curve looks like, in equities, it's just the term structure of all. In other fixed income markets, it's the term structure of all plus the term structure of the forward. And in the post-crisis period, let's say post the big meltdown, post the flash crash, post the European debt sovereign crisis, Bernanke really was able to wrestle control in some ways from the markets with very strong forward guidance. As you said, he tried to flatten the curve. He also did a number on interest rate volatility for years. What was that kind of period like 
when the central banks seem to be asserting the most control. And then it seems as if, and maybe this is where a lot of your work has gone into, there's a change in the dynamics of interest rate vol these days where things are healthier, things are moving around quite a bit. Kind of take us through the 2013, 14, 15, that period where forward guidance was maybe at its apex. What was that like for interest rate vol? Generally, central banks intervening in financial markets has squashed volatility across all assets, whether it's credit, equities, rates, FX, all asset classes have had, I'd say, the impact of lower volatility from central banks pumping up financial assets. Some markets you have, like equities, you have a traditionally negative correlation between vol and the spot level. So when equities sell off, typically that's when vol goes up. But there are other periods like, remember, in the tech boom where you had the market up and vol up. In the rates market, you typically have a positive spot vol correlation with certain types of options. When the market's moving, the vol also goes up. And to us, as convexity sniffers, those are attracted places to own optionality because when you're right on the direction, you can also be making money off the vol. And you mentioned FX, and you've traded a lot of FX volatility, lots of different interesting pairs. What are some of the trades that really stand out for you that were really, really interesting. It's not something I look at day to day. I do follow the sort of broad comings and goings of FX Vol. We were at this incredible low point last year with Eurovol being at foreign change. It's kind of mind blowing, but you talk to folks in those markets and say, you know, you'd be tough to buy some of that stuff. But you've been really active in some of these maybe sometimes exotic currencies where the pairs are not Euro versus USD or JPY USD. What are some of the trades that really stand out as you recall some of your some of the times you've bought options? Yeah, I think three kind of jump out at me. One is the Hong Kong dollar. That being a peg currency, the vol was very, very low. Obviously, we're having the protests now and that has normalized. But looking for cheap optionality, regardless of where implied is versus realized, you can say this is a really peg currencies have always been very interesting. In August 2015, we did very well from owning dollar Saudi. So Saudi Arabian currency, also peg currency. And there are a lot of really interesting ways that you can offset the carry, again, because you have the forward and the vol curve where you can have very cheap optionality. The other one was Turkey. We were pretty, unfortunately, a little too early on our short in Turkey. But when the coup happened, we really thought it was a sign to add shorts there. The cost of optionality was very, very low. And a lot of people were in the lira for carry. So I think looking and being a contrarian as an option buyer, kind of naturally a contrarian because when everybody is doing one thing, the cost of owning an option in that is very cheap. Right, right. So a lot of this is incredibly complicated, maybe not for you, but for folks who might be bottoms up investors in equities or trying to do asset allocation across stocks and bonds. And I know you've had a lot of meetings with institutional investors who could be pension funds, could be endowments. They are no doubt struggling to fulfill their obligations. It's a very challenging period, almost unsolvable in terms of the seven-ish percent equity projections, incredibly low interest rates. I personally worry that superimpose a equity risk off and lower rates, it's going to get even more challenging. So I feel that some hedging or some version of option overlay could be very appropriate for these 
types of investors. And yet there seems to be, and this is where I'd love to get your thoughts, a real still education maybe deficit, that it is complicated stuff. It's hard to explain. Over the course of your meetings with institutional allocator types, what have you seen in terms of the evolution of their understanding? Is there, from your perspective, potentially more adoption coming? What are the hurdles that you see? Yeah, I think most institutional investor portfolios look something like a 60-40 portfolio. They're really concentrated with stocks and bonds and falling indices, where most allocators have a benchmark, whether it's the MSCI indices or the Barclays Ag. And so I think that the problem is that you have a lot of concentration in those portfolios, and then investors are looking for diversification from, they know credit is trading near all-time tights, equities around the world. We have some pockets of value, but generally U.S. equities are near all-time highs. So there's not a lot of value plays. And so I think investors are looking for other ways to augment returns. And I think there's a problem with investors going too much into the private markets, giving up liquidity, going into things like private credit, thinking private credit will diversify their equity portfolios just because in the last crisis, private credit didn't go down very much. And I think it was really the portfolios are not marked as much. It was more, I like to call it the three monkey strategies where they don't want to see, hear, speak any evil. And just because something's not marked and isn't traded doesn't mean that it diversifies your 60-40 portfolio. So to me, that's kind of the issue that I'm seeing on the institutional side. And so maybe running with that just around this notion of liquidity El Irian has written a lot about this, as have so many folks. Not hard to find either academic pieces or practitioner pieces where there's a concern about some liquidity-driven sell-off, where there's a deficit of liquidity in the markets. We saw some version of that in Q4 of 18, especially towards the end of the year. What was that like for you? What comes out of your thinking in terms of trading through pretty big pretty bad fourth quarter for the S&P, but also just a dramatic sell-off in credit at the end of the year. What lessons should people take from that? Yeah, I think that is, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz where you peek behind the curtain and you see it's just some little guy with levers and he's pulling things and it's all facade. The reality is, is these portfolios have given up liquidity and they have a higher concentration in private vehicles, which they cannot sell. And that, to me, means that there will be more market volatility in the public markets because the public markets will become the ATM, the source of liquidity to meet the obligations, whether it's a foundation that has to pay out for tax reasons or whether it's an endowment that has to pay out for, you know, to fund the school or whether it's a pension fund that has to pay out to its constituents. Everybody will need to raise money. And if you have assets falling you still have to meet those obligations. So to me, the shift to private vehicles and locked up capital structures just mean that the public markets could experience more of a liquidity event and more of a shock. So it makes me very excited given Quadratic focuses on owning optionality and owning volatility in gamma. I think it's a great opportunity from an investment point of view. But I think the next crisis, I agree with you, will be on the liquidity side. One of the things that I think that the investment banks always try to do, which is they're always looking for new clients, new customers, and they're always searching for 
that mechanism to make products more accessible. And you talked about risk premium, which seems to have gotten so much more accessible. If I'm a pension fund and suddenly I see this vol risk premium and I can flip a switch and face some big investment bank and they pay me the excess of of implied over realized. Is that a example of in some ways the democratization of these very complicated products? What do you see out there in terms of the next sort of big thing from an adoption rate. And we can talk about the ETF side because what you've done there is very, very interesting. But what is it that's going to get these large institutional investors that are not hedge funds using these products even more? There seems to be progress. What's the next step for the progress? I think a lot of these risk premium strategies are focused on backtesting. And I think the big problem that you have is as an allocator, you have to look at what happened in the past to make investment decisions. And I think the strategies are really flawed because they're assuming correlations, they're making a lot of assumptions, and especially when you're selling options, you don't really necessarily have a loss. Maybe at maturity you do, but you can have a lot of mark-to-market volatility. And so I'm not a big fan of those strategies generally. I think investors need to focus more on what, like, for instance, target day funds. Target day funds have become very, very popular with passive investors where you go and you say, okay, I'm uh, 42 years old. I plan to retire this year. Here's my asset allocation. But the thing that these models are really missing is they're just stocks and bonds. And I don't think they should be putting risk premium into these strategies, but they need, for instance, inflation protection. Inflation right now, we haven't had inflation since the 70s. It impacts everybody's retirement because at the end of the day, you have a certain amount of wealth. You want to sustain your lifestyle, but you need to have, you've seen inflation in healthcare, you've seen it in education. And now the Fed, if you listen to the Fed and you believe that the central banks will eventually carry out their obligations, the Fed is saying, we care about inflation expectations. That's a big focus. If you listen to Powell in front of his testimonies before Congress, he keeps talking about inflation expectations are what drive actual inflation. So for me, I see a tremendous opportunity to say, that's really cheap. Nobody thinks there's going to be inflation. Nobody cares about rate volatility these days. People aren't worried about this inverted yield curve. So to us, that seems like a really tremendous opportunity to look for value in a market when equities and credit are near all-time expensive levels. This is a true source of value. The inflation comments are so interesting. And one of the things I've said is that the next crisis to occur is the one that happened longest ago, and that's inflation. No one can surmise an outcome where we're battling uncomfortable levels of inflation and the Larry Summers secular stagnation theory gets more and more play as they miss their targets. It's really, really interesting. And I can imagine maybe you can share some of your views on the pricing of inflation. Are there synthetic ways to directly bet on inflation? Is there liquidity? How would you set something like that up for someone? Yeah, I mean, going back to access and democratizing financial markets and providing access to the OTC markets, that's why we created. And, you know, I feel like Ival, our fixed income ETF, has been a dream it, build it, launch it three step process. And the reason we did that was to give investors access. Their greatest risk is stagflation. At the end of the day, if you take a step back and you think about look at Europe or look at Asia, what do negative interest rates mean? 
to me, and maybe I'm being too simplistic in this analysis, but it's a tax. It's literally the government saying, we are going to give you less money in the future, and it's a tax. And to me, that's quite stagflationary. And if we have stagflation, both bonds and stocks will go down. There still will be obligations to meet, and then you're going to have higher prices. So that's really the Achilles heel of all of these portfolios. So we think it's a tremendous time to be taking a contrarian view and to say it's a good time from a value point of view to add hedges that will help whether we go into a recession and the Fed starts to cut rates and we go back to the zero bound, if not even lower, the eyeball strategy does well in Fed rate cuts when that happens in the front end or increase in market vol or bid to bonds. But also if we have a normalization of inflation expectations, and that could be things are good and we're having a risk on environment, or it could be, hey, we're having a trade war. And a trade war is just higher prices in the form of a tax, just like negative interest rates. So I think it's a really challenging time. And I would call to investors to say it's time to be not so focused on the back test, not so focused on what happened before, but really think like an investor and what are the risks in your portfolio and what can you do, even though you haven't done them before, to offset those. And so Ival, tell us a little bit about the construction of this. This is not your father's ETF. This is not the spiders. So this would seem to be in a category of ETFs that are pretty innovative. Tell us about how you kind of came to think about it. And then you've described a little bit of the risk sensitivities, but maybe you can walk through some of those a little bit more closely. For us, we saw a tremendous opportunity out there in the active ETF space. So for me, we've been in the financial markets for 20 plus years, and I always thought of ETFs as just passive index replication vehicles, but there's a whole new world of a commingled actively managed fund. So it's very similar to when Quadratic first started, we had a private Cayman vehicle. It's still a commingled fund, but it's listed on the exchange. It has transparency daily with showing you what's in the portfolio, similar to an SMA, and then it has intraday liquidity. And at the end of the day, for anyone who wants to own convexity in their portfolio, you want to have liquidity. It's so important for portfolios. So we just saw it as a fabulous wrapper to implement our same investment strategies. So nothing's new about the way that we're investing in the Eyeball ETF. It's the same old strategy, but it's in a more, I'd say, a technology wrapper that provides access to investors. And instead of having to allocate into a private vehicle, now you have liquidity and transparency. So we just saw a real opportunity to tap into this growing segment of the ETF world as a better, more technology-driven commingled fund. And this may be a little too simplistic, but would it be fair to say that all things being equal, you would put this on the sort of risk-off side of the ledger, meaning it's a bit more on the defensive side of things? Yeah, that's the interesting thing about, so what the portfolio is, it's inflation-protected bonds coupled with options on the shape of the yield curve. So it can definitely be a risk-off portfolio because it's long fixed income volatility. It's long government bonds. It also does well when the curve steepens from Fed rate cuts in the front end, which typically occurs with 
the markets pricing in a recession or the Fed actually cutting rates. So it does have risk off properties, but at the same time, it very much has risk on properties too, because if the Fed is successful and normalizes inflation expectations, you would expect this inverted yield curve that we have right now to steepen. And it would steepen because you'd have a normalization. 10-year rates wouldn't be 45 basis points below three-month rates anymore if the world was normal and people were not pricing in disinflation for the next decade. So it's definitely got a risk on and risk off. And then the other thing that we think is very attractive for investors, it's a way to asset allocate to a government bond portfolio with isolating inflation expectations. So we thought it was a really neat product to solve. Most investors aren't worried about inflation. They need to have hedges in the portfolio. And so we think it provides both a yield generating income. It's a pretty attractive way to have access to yield to a potential hedge and also to the risk on or stagflation node. I want to finish with some discussion on women in finance. But before we do that, what's on your mind now in terms of markets, areas of research, maybe product development that you can share? What are the things that, in addition, of course, to working on IVOL, are there new things as the market evolves and risk factors evolve? What's on your mind these days? Yeah, I think the rise of the target day funds is something that we're very focused on. It's a very interesting concept from an asset allocation point of view. So we're really focused our research on target day, what that means for the market, and also the use of passive indices and how the implications that that's having on government bond markets, for instance, that are market cap weighted instead of weighted by float and what that means. That's very interesting. And of course, Michael Burry just had that piece on the bubble in passive investing. I think the word bubble gets kind of thrown around there a little bit, but I think stepping back and trying to think about what those distortions might be as a function of people that are robotically allocating to something. I always go back to the triple Q in 2000. I think the PE was 80 or something like that. And folks are buying it just because they had to. Didn't make a lot of sense. And I think the sad thing is, is that you have products that get wrapped with labels that may not be so descriptive. Like for instance, I'm not sure how you feel about low vol stocks or min vol stocks. Those are just value stocks that pay dividends that don't really have anything to do with volatility. And so I feel like there's a lot of this marketing buzz where people come up with, whether it was smart beta, I also hated that term, or risk premia or low vol, min vol stocks. It's kind of just marketing nonsense, in my opinion. Like that doesn't really, just because a stock has had a lower standard deviation historically, doesn't mean that it's going to have less vol than the overall market, especially when everyone is running in there to diversify their portfolio. Right. I think at the end of the day, finance is challenging, it's efficient. And as an end user, you should get what you pay for, or at least know what you're getting. And to your the product that you've developed and the transparency that sits there on a Bloomberg screen, I commend you. I think there was just a, some research on academic research on structured products. And we know this universe of autocallables and all kinds of complexity that the effectively the man or woman on the street owns without really knowing it and pays a hefty price for. And I just think it's at the end of the day, it's about delivering something efficiently and a good cost. So let's talk about as we wrap up, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm glad we got to do it. Women in finance. I'm going back to 
2003, because I believe this was before you had your son. And I was hosting dinners at Bank of America, the Vol Roundtable Dinner, which had about 80 people and 79 were men. And then there was you, pregnant with your first child. And still remember that because, uh, of course, someone took the car we had waiting for you home. It's got to be a difficult journey in terms of being a woman. And, And I just have wanted to explore how that process of getting women more engaged in finance. I think it's there's been progress, but I just would love to hear from you over the course of your career, how things have evolved from that standpoint and initiatives that are occurring now, what the roadblocks may still be. Share some of your thoughts with us. I feel very fortunate to live in this country and to have the opportunities that I do as a woman. And I think I always try to look at the even when I'm the one out of 80 in the room and only woman in the room, how do we get more women into the industry? How do we level the playing field even more? How do we get more progress? And so I do a lot with students and a lot on the education side in my spare time just for personal reasons to flatten the playing field more. And I think there needs to be more women on the investing side. Because for me, at least in my career, when you're an investor and you have a P&L, a number next to your name, it's the ultimate meritocracy. And it doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from or who you're friends with. If you do well and you make money, you're rewarded, period. So I think women in investing roles is really the place to be, the place to concentrate. And I think that's been one of my missions is to get more women to move to investing, move to portfolio management, move to making investment decisions, and also to focus on entrepreneurialism. I started Quadratic in 2013. It was definitely a very risky thing to do to start your own firm. And I wish there were more women founders out there. But I think I'm seeing progress. And I think there have been some success stories, Quadratic being one of them. And I think that gives other women coming up in the industry encouragement to try it as well. And I think at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, you're making a bet on yourself. And I think it's challenging. It's hard. There are a lot of up and down, you know, starting your own firm kind of it's you work a lot more, you get paid a lot less and you have a lot more risk. But it's so rewarding at the end of the day to build a company, to build a business like Ival, I think, is a great example of really being innovative and being able to step back and say, nobody is doing this, but this is a great thing to do and actually dream it, build it, launch it which I don't think I could have done if I was at a bigger firm. Well, we'll leave it there. And uh, thank you so much, Nancy, for uh, being a guest. Thank you so much, Dean. Great being here. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.